Hello and welcome to this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. I'm Henning Hoff, Executive Editor. A hostile Russia, an encroaching China, an unpredictable and time-threatening United States under President Donald Trump. Europe's foreign policy challenges aren't exactly new. But the arrival of the next European Commission, now likely to start in December, offers a unique opportunity to finally make progress in forging a truly European foreign policy. Commission President-elect Ursula von der Leyen has promised a geopolitical EU. And incoming EU High Representative on Foreign Affairs, the Spaniard Josep Borrell, has made it clear too, it's time to change gears. Here he is speaking to the European Parliament back in October. To sum up, in a single sentence, the European Union has to learn to use the language of power. This is not the world the European Union wanted. But I am convinced that we have what it takes to face this challenging environment because we are, and we must be proud of it, the best combination of political freedom, economic prosperity, and social cohesion in the world. We profiled Joseph Borrell in a widely read close-up special in October, which you can find at berlinpolicyjournal.com. So what needs to happen to transform the EU into a player on the world stage? For answers, we turned to the author of the lead story in our new November-December issue. Jana Pulyarin is the head of the Alfred von Oppenheim Center for European Policy Studies at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You start your piece by quoting former German Foreign Minister Sigmar Gabriel and then build on this comment about the European Union being a vegetarian that needs to adopt to a world of carnivores. What do you mean by that? Well, we should go back to what uh, Sigmar Gabriel meant by this. Uh, he meant that in the growing competition between the great powers, um, the US, China, also Russia, the EU, um, is severely under stress, is, is put under a lot of pressure, is not applying the same methods, needs to become better in projecting the power it has. You also say that, that Europe operates in a new reality. You say big power competition, but what else sort of makes this new reality? Well, the problem, um, I think, uh, for the EU is that right after 89 and then in the 90s, the idea was that through mutual cooperation, um, also economic cooperation, also with difficult partners, these partners would more become like us and that the EU would manage to transform its neighborhood into something that would be um, kind of uh, more looking like the European Union. and. Uh, over the last, um, let's say, five years at least, the EU has to come to terms with the fact that the neighborhood is not exactly a lookalike of the European Union, but um, looks more like the 19th century again, and that we are talking about a zero-sum game between states and great power competition, the growing conflict between the US and China. And at the same time, you also say Europe or the EU can't become a carnivore. Why not? Well, the problem is that the EU, when it was founded, the founding idea was to create a, a model that is opposite to the power politics that led the European continent into two world wars. So the, the basic idea of the European Union is kind of the antidote to, to great power politics. It's the idea that through mutual cooperation, states uh, wouldn't wage war against each other, would become partners, uh, would become democracies, and that we could create a stable Europe 
So the idea that one state gains at the expense of the other state is uh, not kind of it's not very European. It's, it's the opposite. It's the idea that through creating more unity, every country will be better off. Hmm. Now, now the world doesn't doesn't go in Europe's direction. What, what can the EU actually do then? Well, I think the EU has actually power and it has not been very good in using this power as leverage. So the EU is a, a regulatory superpower, is a superpower when it comes to trade, when it comes to its market power. So um, and the EU is not very good in linking its power um, to conditions and to other policy areas and other powers do this, like Donald Trump constantly links his trade and his security policy. I'm not saying that the EU should do that, but I'm saying that the EU should kind of finding um, its own model of power politics, but it has to find a way how to become more resilient in this world and how to um, follow its own interests and how to make sure that the world in the future still works like the European wants it uh, w w to work and not that they become kind of the battleground for the other great powers. Mm. Now, the, 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 the EU consists of small countries and, and, and large countries and some very large countries and, and they, they tend to have their own foreign policy, France in particular, Germany maybe not so much right now. We've got a big discussion at home at the moment about um, whether we have a foreign policy at all. But how would you see, see this sort of the foreign policy of big states feeds into a European foreign policy? Isn't there a sort of fundamental uh, opposition between the two? Well, I'm a big believer in the quote of late Belgian Prime Minister Paul-Henri Spark, who once said there are only two kinds of states in Europe, small states and small states that have not yet realized that they are small. Um, so I think when it comes to Europe and especially vis-a-vis -vis China or the United States, every single European member state is actually too small to kind of survive on the international um, scene without kind of a close connection with the other European member states without closely interacting with them, without pooling power and sovereignty in order to become sovereign again. So I think there is no such thing as national sovereignty when it comes to EU member states on the foreign policy um, stage. So we can talk about European sovereignty here. And even that is kind of a very difficult concept. The problem nowadays is that, or it's not nowadays, I think it has been a problem ever since the EU has decided to have its own foreign and security policy, that it's um, based on consensus and that it's very much driven by national interests and that um, kind of countries tend to forget that they are small and that they need the others and that they are very often following their own way, even if it is in opposition to decisions taken by the other 26 or 27 member states. Mm. Since you mentioned small states, there's one which is trying to leave the EU and not very successful so far at it, uh, the United Kingdom. How, how do you see, does Brexit fit into the whole question of, of forging a European foreign policy? I think the exit of the UK, if it will ever happen, will severely weaken the EU's foreign and security policy capacities, even though the UK did not contribute 
actively that much to common security and defense policy, for example, and many see it as a chance for progress, actually, inside the EU that the UK is leaving. I think that the loss of the UK will be felt very significantly also on the European side. But I think both the UK and the EU have a close have an interest in close cooperation because the UK, uh, with its concept of a global Britain, I think will not succeed without the help of the EU. I think the UK, even more than the EU, risks to be squeezed between the United States, China, and then the European Union, uh, and needs to align its policies closely with the European Union even after Brexit. But I think the European Union should be much more open for finding creative ways how to cooperate with the UK and not treat it as any other normal third party outside the EU. Disunity is one thing. The other is the new commission, which was supposed to be in office by now. We are mid-November now, but hasn't, hasn't actually uh, started working yet. Is this delayed start also a bad sign? And, and what does it tell us about the future of European foreign policy? I think the delayed start shows that uh, Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, doesn't have a very strong mandate. I think um, it becomes now visible that she was elected by a very small um, majority and that now <laughs> there are substantial problems also with the European Parliament and she really needs to work hard to overcome this and to have a good working relationship with the European Parliament. But I'm still hopeful. I think von der Leyen, as defense minister in Germany, was very much aware of the growing threats outside Germany and the European Union. She's a foreign and security policy person. She's very much aware of what needs to be done. I think she um, has sent a strong signal by calling her commission a geopolitical commission. So I think once this commission takes off, there is a fair chance that we will see much more action also coming from her and the commission when it comes to um, the EU's external footprint. The other, the other key person is, is Josep Borrell, the, the EU's new chief diplomat. If you were his advisor, what would be the one big piece of advice you would like to give to him? I think he should actively seek to get the trust of the member states. That was one of the biggest problems that Federica Mogherini was facing, that the member states just did not delegate competences to Mogherini. So if I was Borrell, I would really try to actively uh, seek close cooperation with the heads of state and government and uh, with Charles Michel and the European Council as such. I mean, he's in a very difficult position. He's sitting between basically the Commission and the European Council. And I think he should try to find his own portfolio and policy area where he really calls the shots, so he's in the driving seat, like Cathy Ashton and uh, Federica Mogherini succeeded with the Iran portfolio. I don't know if it can be Iran right now under these circumstances, but he should try to find his own um, policy area. He needs to show that he delivers something that Mogherini on many other policy areas uh, did not do. Jana, thank you very much. Thank you. It was great to be here. Speaking of small states or otherwise, since this summer, French President Emmanuel Macron has been very active on the world stage, determined, it seems, to drag Europe along. Last week, he made the headlines with an interview with The Economist that ruffled quite a few feathers, not least in Berlin. Macron predicted that Europe will disappear if it can't think of itself as a global power. Our colleague Claire Demesmey, a leading expert on France and head of the Franco-German program at the German Council on Foreign Relations, 
and also a contributor to our latest issue, explains what's behind it. The most commented sentence in the interview was that NATO is becoming brain dead. These are unusually harsh words, especially from a European head of state. It shows the impatience of Macron, who's been advocating European autonomy in defense for two years. The tone is particularly tough, but Macron's view that the Europeans can no longer rely on America to defend themselves isn't new. In his speech to the ambassadors in the summer, Macron had already been very pessimistic. He even spoke of the possibility of Europe's disappearance. And in the interview, he said it again. If Europe doesn't think of itself as a power in the world, it will disappear. So what is his main point? He calls on his European partners to act quickly in favor of European military sovereignty. In this respect, he welcomes the European Intervention Initiative and the creation of the European Defense Fund. But more than just the question of capabilities, Macron wants the Europeans to develop strategic thinking on security issues like artificial intelligence or 5G issues. All this is in line with his speech at the Sorbonne in 2017. What is new, though, is that he also wants to rethink the strategic relationship with Russia in the next 10 years and to cooperate more with Russia on specific issues like the fight against terrorism. But on this point, Emmanuel Macron takes a risk. Instead of waking up Europeans as he wants to, he's likely to upset many of his European partners. Macron also recently visited China, both to build up European-Chinese relations and French business in the country. As Claire says, it's highlighted some strengths of his approach, but also some weaknesses. Well, I think that Macron's visit to China is a good illustration of his commitment to reconciling French national interests with a European presence on the international stage. There is something that always appears in Macron's speeches. It is Europe's weakness. He is obsessed with the idea that Europe is not taken seriously by its international partners. He says again and again that a divided Europe first benefits China and the United States, and that it's of crucial importance to speak with one European voice. But, of course, he's not alone, and it's more difficult to do than to say, because of a real tension between the national and the European approach. That's why in China, Macron's made symbols work. For example, as he met with company representatives from France and from Germany to discuss with them about the problems of Europeans on the Chinese market. His message is simple. In China, Macron wanted to speak not only as president of France, but also in the name of the Europeans. But he would have been more convincing if he had traveled to China with the president of the European Commission and with Angela Merkel instead of the German research minister. It's not only that Europe is coming to China, rather China is coming to Europe with a gigantic infrastructure project, the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. 
The $1 trillion project, launched in 2013, is supposed to link up Asia with Europe and Africa. Jacob Medell, a British journalist and expert on the BRI, has been traveling along what's called the New Silk Road since the spring, sending us updates along the way. At the moment, he is in Central Asia, in Kyrgyzstan to be precise, and he sent us this audio postcard. Not cheers, prost or salut, but davai gambe. That's how employees of China Road and Bridge Corporation raise a glass here in Kyrgyzstan, using Russian and Chinese in a strangely appealing Eurasian patois. I know this because a couple of days ago I was drinking vodka with some engineers in Kazanov, where China Road and Bridge Corporation are building a near $1 billion highway straight through the country's mountainous interior. This is China's New Silk Road in practice. Roads that transform trade and travel, coal plants that pollute, corrupt, but also bring power to millions. The New Silk Road, China's Belt and Road Initiative, One Belt, One Road, whatever you want to call it, it's a messy, diverse, complicated phenomenon that is best seen from the ground. That's why I'm travelling from Brussels to Beijing, visiting projects and speaking to locals about how they see China and what the Belt and Road Initiative means to them. At the moment I've stopped off in Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, a small Central Asian Republic where China has undoubtedly emerged as the country's most important economic partner, a fact that people here aren't entirely happy about. At half a million lines, the Epic of Manas takes days to recite in full. It's the world's longest epic poem, a foundational text of the Kyrgyz people, and it's almost entirely about being at war with China. This instinctual nomadic fear of the empire to the east still lingers large in this part of the world raising the question of whether Chinese power will ever be fully accepted in Central Asia. Over the coming days and weeks, I hope to explore this question, and more, sharing the voices I hear along the New Silk Road and taking a more detailed, human look at an initiative that is reshaping the world. Jacob Medell from the New Silk Road, with music from his friend Kubad, playing the Komus, a traditional Kyrgyz instrument. For more from Jacob, please go to berlinpolicyjournal.com slash on the New Silk Road. And that's all for this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. Thanks to my editorial colleagues, Siobhan Dowling and Noah Gordon, and to our producer, Susan Stone. Join us again in mid-December when we'll be focusing on Germany. Angela Merkel is still in office, but is she still in power? Who will follow Germany's mighty chancellor and leader of Europe? And what does it mean for German foreign policy? Until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening. <laughs>